Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. We are on the fourth in a series of what we're calling Toxic Legacy, and it has really been a very penetrating discussion. We've, we've really learned a lot, I think, over the last three weeks about just exactly who's involved, where the weak links are, where the failure points are that enabled some of this uh, very unfortunate uh, pollution to occur and still to be haunting us even to this day. Today, we're going to talk about yet another group of individuals, another segment of industry that uh, benefited greatly from this situation and continues to thrive, I would say, on just some of the some of that benefit even today. And I can think of even you know, very, very recent activity that I can point to, and maybe I will later on in our conversation, that basically mirrors what uh, I think we're about to talk about today. So with that, let me turn it over to Dr. Chuck Stead. And uh, Chuck, uh, let's, uh, let's begin. Thank you, Joe. So the fourth part in the Toxic Legacy series raised a great deal of concern with the record's administrative staff, according to Jan Barry. Wednesday, October 5th, the front page hosted a headline that read, The Mob Cleaned Up. Reporters Alex Nussbaum and Tom Troncone led this narrative that detailed the role the mafia haulers had and other corner-cutting carters, you might call them, had in dumping Ford's waste. Ringwood residents who advocated against industrial chemicals, medical waste, and Ford paint sludge being hauled to a private landfill in the woods found their lives threatened. Robert Constant was warned that he could find himself in the bottom of the Hudson River. Others noted that haulers carried firearms in their truck cabs. During the 1970s, haulers carried off industrial waste into the night and spread it in private landfills, mountain streams, and alongside the roadbeds. Today, that legacy leaches through Superfund sites, costing taxpayers and corporations millions of dollars in waste cleanup. Morris Hinchley, a New York congressman who led a probe on toxic dumping in the 1980s, is quoted as saying, now this is him, Hinchy speaking, We know where most of the worst materials are, but there are places off the back roads that have not really been dealt with yet. Bradley Campbell notes that waste haulers took things to a lot of dump sites and they didn't keep records. He tells us our operating assumption is that there are still additional sites that have not been identified. But according to Nussbaum and Troncone, no one was looking for these sites. Not the state, not the federal authorities. They said, well, they said they lacked the staff to do the work. The role mobsters played in the hauling of toxic waste, as explained by the record, became pivotal as, quote, the toxic waste was a growth industry in the 1970s when the new laws were first being imposed. They had exerted control over the garbage business for decades. The mafia controlled many haulers and demanded tribute from others. They used intimidation to enforce an illegal property rights system to divvy up customers. Whoever hauled to a particular address owned that location forever, free from competition. Move in on another man's territory and you risk getting your trucks blown up, your legs broken or a bullet to the head. 
The records investigation goes on to identify what it refers to as the kingpins of trash, starting with a Monroe, New York family led by Joseph Mongelli, a hauler who entered the business in the 1960s, then partnered with Louisville, Kentucky-based Industrial Services of America. That's called ISA. He landed the Mawal contract when he partnered with them. ISA founder Harry Clitter claimed that they only worked with the Mongellis until 1970, and that for their part, the Ford waste was dumped properly, which given that none of Ford's paint was appropriate for any of the locations it traveled to, begs the question, what was proper about it, Harry? The Mongellis put Mario, the shadow giganti, in control of their company. ISA in New Jersey, Inc., that was their company. His brother, Vincent the Chin Giganti, later headed the Genovese crime family. Hmm. Former ISA driver Charles Oltzel reported that the Mongellis ordered waste to be sent to more than a dozen locations illegally. One of these was the old Wanakue Municipal Dump, now a satellite campus of Passaic County Community College. Another frequently used site was a private dump just above Greenwood Lake in Warwick, New York. Trucks carried blood, organs, and other hospital waste, battery acids, industrial chemicals, and of course, paint sludge. One nearby family spied on the Grace Disposal dump site at Warwick. They reported, quote, household rubbish mixed with thick black liquid, black liquid that burns skin on contact and has a strong smell. Also a bag containing rubber gloves, masks, and a piece of paper stating materials in the bag are radioactive contaminated. About a half an hour later, a load from Ford showed up. So the residents, who complained to local officials and documented their observations, were threatened, brake lines were slashed, lug nuts on the car wheels were loosened. Despite intimidation, the residents persisted. As Robert Constant said, quote, we determined we would risk our lives because the alternative was to allow the lives of millions of people to be in danger. Eventually, the dump was closed in 1980. Joseph Mongelli told reporters his family had no contact with organized crime. He also said the Mongellis had taken all the paint sludge to the Bergen County landfill in Lyndhurst. Of the testimonies of his drivers, he said, when you are talking to drivers, you are talking to old men. They are often confused. While his brothers were later prosecuted for racketeering and bribery, they were never charged. Mind you, never charged with illegal dumping. Other players in the network of illegal Ford dumping included Dwayne Marine Salvage Corps, a Perth Amboy hazardous waste processor who landed a hauling contract with the Mongellis to move Ford's sludge to their incinerator, which didn't exist. So they stockpiled leaking drums alongside the Arthur Kill. Eventually, they mixed the sludge with shale from a Chevron refinery in Perth Amboy, and then dumped it in the East Brunswick Edgeboro landfill. Dirk Ottens, a retired New Jersey State detective, who had investigated Duane Marine Salvage and other haulers, has said, quote, we're reaping now what we were sowing back then, end quote. His long and arduous investigation of the illegal haulers eventually brought about a congressional hearing which landed him and his partner under heavy scrutiny by New Jersey authorities. 
Ottens had staked out many of the players and documented their maneuvers, such as Mongelli subcontractor S&W Waste Inc. of South Kearney, whom he witnessed mixing chemical waste with loads of household garbage, a dumping practice known as cocktailing. S&W Waste morphed into Clean Earth New Jersey, one of the current landfills that continues to work with Ford. Another Ford contractor, All-County Environmental Service Corps of Edgewater, was shut down over PCB dumping on its Hudson River property. Former mob associate-turned-government informant Harold Kaufman claimed that in 1978, Chin Giganti threatened Joseph Marcoluso, whose son Charles owned Statewide Environmental, a company that held onto Ford's Edison plant garbage contract during a very tense meeting that almost escalated into a mob war. Charles, who served as an honorary corps chairman of the 1976 Democratic Convention, had close ties to the Genovese crime family. Nussbaum and Troncone essentially name a gallery of crime families all connected to the Ford dumping, along with landfill inspectors, local police chiefs, municipal judge, and regulators. As for retired state police detective Ottens, they report to this day, Ottens is uneasy about papers he said went missing at Ford's Ballwall plant. He claims he visited the factory in 1979 and found memos that identified manifests and fraud by some of Ford's haulers. When he returned with a subpoena for the records, however, key documents were missing. In their place, Ottens claims was a note that somebody in the state attorney general's office had warned Ford he was coming. Hmm. The final installment of the series focused on the compounds themselves. On Thursday, October 6th, under a headline that read, Danger Upstream, was a center page photo of a stream in the Peters Mine area of Ringwood, brightly colored orange with a stained bullfrog lounging in the contaminated water. Lindy Washbourne was the lead writer for this installment. Focused on the impact Ford's pollution has upon the watershed, this article was accompanied by graphic photos of contamination and maps identifying regions of concern. Early in the narrative, Robert Spiegel with the Edison Wetlands Association is quoted as saying, quote, We know that we have contamination leaving the site. We know that there's some in the surface water bodies on the site. We do not know the full extent of this. He goes on to indicate both the EPA and the Municipal Water Authority do not know the full extent either. While the extent of the contamination may be a mystery, the actual list is well known. According to the record's own water quality testing, they have found lead, arsenic, chromium, cadmium, freon, and benzene along the upper Ringwood streams, seeps, and pools. And downstream, in the Ringwood River bottom, Sediment can be found with lead, nickel, antimony, arsenic, chromium, and copper. As Washbourne indicates, exposure to these individual chemicals is linked to kidney disease, abnormal brain cell activity, skin lesions, birth defects, and different types of cancer, among other health problems. The combined effect of several together, even in extremely low dosages, is referred to as toxic synergy. And this is only now being studied. This was said back in 2005. To this day, this has not been studied fully. 
Washburn focuses on the dispute between one camp, the New Jersey District Water Commission, which has determined that runoff from the contamination area is clean by the time it reaches the Wanakue Reservoir, and the other camp, Edison Wetlands Association, community members and environmental advocates who argue that regardless of the current indicators, there is a volume of potential contamination waiting to come downstream. The record commission tests that found lead and other metals in the brook sediment to be three times higher than the state standard for cleanup. But in the water flow, it was not to be found. The distance the water travels from Upper Ringwood to the reservoir is about one and a half miles. The water flows through beaver ponds, wetlands, and over a small dam. Beaver ponds are natural sedimentation tanks. As the water flows into them, the velocity decreases and the heavy metals fall to the bottom or are captured with other sediment particles against the rodent's dam. Wetlands filter metals and other compounds through water reeds and algae growth. Then by means of a process of drawing the mix up through plant materials known as phytoremediation, the load can decay and be exposed to aeration. A beaver dam, like a man-made dam, is both another settling mechanism for heavy metals and an aeration mechanism by means of evaporation for volatile organic compounds. As Washburn states, the heavy metals are not very soluble and tend to settle out of water. They gravitate to the bottom in a still pool. The volatile organics that are trapped in the sludge, like the bubbles in a Malabar cookie, dissipate when they are exposed to air released by the riffle of a waterfall or a wave tossed up by the wind. Washburn's metaphor of a Malamar cookie is particularly striking, as it brings to home the not-so-subtle reminder that ultimately the scientific analysis rests on the shoulders of the innocent, the children. So the question is, how safe is the water that reaches the Wanakue Reservoir? According to Michael Barnes, the chief engineer of the North Jersey District Water Supply Commission, it's clean enough, chemically speaking, to drink. Quote, before it even gets to the reservoir to be treated, you could drink it for lead. Hmm. In other words, it is within federal clean water standards for lead contamination. But no one actually drinks the water where it enters the reservoir. First, it's diluted in a 30 billion gallon holding tank, and then it's transferred to the water treatment plant six miles away. At the treatment plant, a corrosion inhibitor is added to keep the water from leaching lead and copper off indoor pipes and fixtures and that sort of thing. While this bodes well for the Water Supply Commission's efforts at one end of the pipe, it does not take into consideration the changing nature of both the above and below ground water movement. Barnes is also deeply concerned about the lack of knowledge as to how much total contamination is in the watershed. Since the dumping was primarily done illegally, there are no records, and both state and federal regulators, as well as Ford, have done little to account for the original volume dumped. There is also the concern expressed by Edison Wetlands Association that the test wells used to conclude no harm had been done to the groundwater were flawed. According to EWA's consultant engineer, Richard Chapin, the wells were seldom sampled and located in the wrong places to find pollution. Chapin, he recommends, a thorough study to understand the water's movement underground through abandoned mine tunnels and natural cracks and fissures. 
that geology would be complicated enough to map. But, he notes, these cracks have been subjected to underground blasting for 200 years in the mining area. In other words, underground water movement, given the altered cavernous terrain of the mining area, along with the ever-changing nature of the surface water runoff due to erosion and other soil disturbances, could change the flow of contaminants into the reservoir. And there is still the mystery of knowing the true nature of underground materials. As Carter Strickland Jr. of the Rutgers Environmental Law Clinic has noted, the underground dumping has yet to be properly characterized. Barnes would like to get rid of all of it by drying out the mines, extracting the waste, and trucking it to a landfill. But in order to do this, millions of gallons of water would need to be pumped to a portable water treatment plant before it could be released to feeder streams back into the watershed. And as Chapin has observed, this could be tremendously expensive. Washburn adds the final installment with the commentary from environmental activists Jeff Welch and Bob Spiegel. Both men have a long history of environmental advocacy, and both of them continue to fight the little battles in the bigger war. Clearly, the role of public participation is fundamental to the process of recovery. While the debate continues, the advocate heralds the public to arms, but stands alone in the field, unpaid and alienated from much of the mainstream. But their actions do not go unnoticed. As the achievement of Toxic Legacy in the fall of 2005 by John Barry and his colleagues attest to, the Bergen record produced a groundbreaking investigative body of work that brought greatest scrutiny to the Ringwood portion of the Ramapo Ford story. More than a year in the works with a team of journalists devoted to countless hours and stewarded by Jan Barry, a journalist of the old school accustomed to pounding the sidewalk, knocking on doors, following leads, and facing down dubious editors. He kept the story alive. This was not the work of a vainglorious writer hungry for recognition but that of a man outraged by what he experienced in the field. Barry is a storyteller who chipped away at the regulatory agency's denial, deconstructed local political agendas, and listened very closely to the experience of the Ramapo's ordeal. It is the nature of this man and his determined search for the truth that kept the toxic legacy team going. In a time when public sentiment tends towards apathy, and surrender to a dominant presence, Barry challenged the reader to take notice. Although he would be the first to acknowledge the collaborative teamwork on legacy, it was his own steady hand that grounded the work. It was Jan's Vietnam experience with his years of Agent Orange investigation that nurtured the writer who would encounter a truth among the Ramapos. And as we shall see in the next chapter, Jan's approach is unfortunately unique for mass media tends to choose urban myth over the truth for their market. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to growl. Uh, well, I, I really hope we do get to meet Jan. because Oh, yes, he's wonderful. Yeah, this was a seismic thing that he accomplished here i guess what's really tragic is that you can tell people the very difficult truth the inconvenient truth you can give them all the facts and the details and you can probe and 
dig and and uh, and find out all the the connecting conduits that make the problem even worse. Everything from politicians to regulatory agencies that don't really do their job to the mob. And still, it requires the relentless participation of the community, the public, we the people, or it dies on the vine. I guess that's the one thing that has not been sustainable. The reporting was brilliant. The effort was noble. But I don't know that we the people have really done our part of the job in order to make it happen. You know, you mentioned Wanakue and the current location of uh, the community college. I mean, it's just, it's astounding to me that this is the, the condition of our lives right now. I, I know people, my wife taught people uh, who go to that community college. Wonderful young people with tremendous potential and possibility who could and very well might change the world. And there they are at a place where a toxic waste dump still, I guess, the the effects of it still reside there. Yeah, we can't know that the place isn't built on top of that material because of the time frame in which it was built. Oh, we can see paperwork that says, oh, there was full remediation, blah, blah, blah. That might mean for the footprint of the building, but it wouldn't necessarily cover the campus. So we can't know that unless we go back and do soil samples and studies and see what's seeping from anywhere. I mean, the, the, the reality, Joe, is that there really isn't a, a community in America that doesn't have its own brownfield story. Mm. This is the result of, you know, being an industrially intoxicated economy. And in this century, we're living or trying to survive living the, uh, the work of the last century. You know, that's the best we can do right now. I, uh, I mentioned this much earlier on, and I think even in some of the, the Backport Stories sessions that we had, that just 300 yards from where I am sitting right now, there was a gentleman by the name of uh, Joe Wallace who was bringing in 50 to 100 trucks a day full of industrial waste and dumping it in the middle of the deep woods behind my house. If you take a look at it from Google Maps, you can see the dump. You can see the trailers full of God only knows what that he tried to bury there. It's 70 feet high and acres and acres uh, wide. And you wonder how many other places there are like this. How many, is it thousands? Is it tens of thousands? Is it hundreds of thousands across the United States of America? You just wonder, you know, because... One thing you see time and time again is he obviously profited significantly from what he was doing over a long period of time. He's got good, smart lawyers. Here we are again with the question, can we do justice in America anymore? Or has corruption gotten so sophisticated and so effective that it basically outpaces our ability to to prosecute? You wonder how many of these places there are in America because he's still living there. He's not in jail. I don't know of any major fines that have been levied and actually paid. You know, there's all kinds of delay tactics used. Uh, I suppose you can delay justice forever, you know, in our country nowadays. Uh, and, And as long as that's the case, and there are no real consequences except for the cost of courts and, and lawyers, 
which are probably minuscule next to the kind of profit one can make. How many of these situations exist right now across America? And does that not call for a whole revamping and rethinking of the way that we regulate and and guard against this kind of misalliance when it comes to our environment? It's, It's hard to tell, but there it stands. I can open a Google map right now and take a look at it, or I can just take a walk. They found, they did some core drillings and everything else, and they did find PCBs and all sorts of other, you know, contaminants in the soil now, basically draining and leaching off into the into the earth. There's no way that can have an effect eventually if it doesn't of already course. on my water. Of course, because there's no way. You don't throw something away. Remember yeah. when you look at they say throw it away? There's no way. Right. It goes someplace. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we've talked about the importance of our vote in terms of doing something about this, something constructive about this. It's not just the vote, but it's who you're voting for. We, we have to start really isolating and vetting those people who will rage against the system. There's a lot of people that talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. They say they're going to do these things, but they pass empty legislation that does next to nothing. It's got powerful names on the legislation, but it's just BS, you know, like the Clear Skies Initiative that didn't do anything to clear the skies. Right, So you got to find people that are really going to go to bat, and that's really hard because, you know, people like that don't don't get funding from great big corporations. They just get funding from us. So then right. the next thing you have to do is you actually have to you have to give some of your hard-earned cash to these people. You got to help them to run a campaign that that's viable and that can win. I know it's frustrating. We live in a country where, you know, I guess you can have the best justice and the best government money can buy. Uh, it's sad, but it's true thanks to the Supreme Court's decision on Citizens United and things like that. We have more money in politics now than than ever before in all of history. And when I say more money, I'm talking about billions and billions and billions of dollars uh, from questionable sources. You can track a 503C, but you can't track a 504, and that's where most of the money gets into politics. So you can have money coming from Saudi Arabia wanting to protect uh, and and keep fossil fuels in the mix. Uh, You can have money from Russia. You can have money from anywhere and not know where it's coming from and have no way to be able to define that, you know, outside of major investigations, which cost the taxpayers millions more. So we have our work cut out for us. We are going to have to really become relentless students of this situation. I think one real simple way to start is tell your friends about this podcast. Tell them they've got to listen to it. Yeah, tell, tell them to buy the book so yeah. that they have a reference manual and tell them to get outraged. Wake <laughs> up. It's time. It's time to get outraged about this. Remember that great scene and I think it was in Network where the actor sticks his head out the window and he says, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Yeah, yeah, that's... Uh, do stuff. Right, that should be the... Just do stuff. That should be the by, the, the, the by phrase of this whole thing is... You got to get mad as hell. You got to. Yeah. You got to realize this is going to have an effect on your life, and the 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 longevity of your life, and and the health of your children. Is there anything more important to fight for? You know, when I talk to my kids, I I have a son, James, who has four children, and 
and he's a good father, a really good father. And I, I told him just this past Father's Day, well, how does it feel to be really good at the one thing that is the most important thing you will ever do in this world? Not business, not how much money you make, not what kind of car you drive or how nice your house looks, but to be a father to children and to lead them to higher ground and give them a sense of confidence and a sense of purpose in mm. this world. This is what we should be about right now. And yeah. one of the great purposes of our lives should be speaking on behalf of and defending the environment. And there's a, a great old phrase that, that I've heard where uh, the earth is the gift to us, I think, and, and what we do with it is a gift to our children, uh, something to that effect. So do you want to give them a good gift or a ratty one? Yeah, yeah. Eventually. So what I would close with right now, Dr. Chuck, is number one, get involved. Your vote is absolutely critically important. Number two, think very critically about what everybody says. Be suspect of authority. Do not accept it on face value. Do the research. Dig in. Find out what's really going on behind the scenes. And a great place to start, a great reference manual, would be your book, Get the Let Out. You can click on a link in these podcasts at any given time and buy that book. And then spread the word. You know, send a link from this of this podcast to other people. Get them involved. Get them to listen to what's going on. We're going to talk more. We're going to have more episodes. But it just seems like we're coming to that kind of tipping point where... I really have to ask the listeners to get involved, to really, yeah. you know, become a part of this battle yeah. you know, for, for the survival of a habitable planet Earth. The planet Earth is going to be here no matter what. It's us. We may not be. Okay. That's right. The planet will survive. The planet will do okay. The planet will throw us off its surface if it has to, if we keep on violating it. Yep. But... If you want to have a habitable earth, a place where our children can can grow and flourish and be happy, you got to get involved. You got to get into this fight. That's it. Well, that's my two cents. That's good. I think we can wrap this episode up. Uh, next week, we're going to start talking about a story as told by others. We're going to start looking at how the Ramapos have been interpreted uh, in, in terms of who they are, what they're about, and what they're going through. And by others, it's, um, well, it's uh, less than admirable. So we're going to take a critical look at that. Okay, that sounds good. A great next step. Folks, thanks for listening. Again, these are difficult topics and difficult things to hear and to metabolize, if you will, and digest. But by God, we've got to. We have to. Yep, we'll get through this together. Yes. Thanks. Thanks, Chuck. And we'll see you all next week on Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. See you next week. And now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange, your hometown used bookstore, now at our new location at 84 Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Now, if you've been here before, you'll love your next visit even more because we proudly share our new space with Astoria Hudson, 
a clothing boutique run by our good friend, Katie. The Montgomery Book Exchange is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can read a book enjoyed by someone a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margin giving you an insight as to what mattered the most to the previous reader. That's how Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their Facebook Live sales or their intimate author readings and book signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks? And did you know you can get store credits in the form of Montgomery Book Exchange book bucks when you bring your well-loved and gently used books in for a store credit? You can also find your Montgomery Book Exchange friends every first Friday evening at the monthly Handmade Montgomery event, which takes place from 6 to 8 p.m. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade items ranging from pottery to jewelry. For more information, just go to the MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. There's one more thing. They have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter is open Wednesday through Saturday. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can also contact the Children's Chapter at 845 522 9652. The Montgomery Book Exchange.com. Your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place.